All right, yes. Uh, Josh, am I getting the light for me? Or maybe, sorry, thank you, thank you. Hey, just want to say good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. Uh, if you're new, my name is Josiah. So glad you're here. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. So if you would do me a favor, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Uh, we're taking the, the year to really just go through the Gospel of Mark. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We got some people passing out Bibles. We'd love for you to be able to follow along with us. But we're in the Gospel of Mark. Um, as you're turning there, I'll remind you of a couple things. Small groups started this, this last week. Um, so, this is a perfect week to find community, to get in community, to join a group. We have two new women's groups that have started, but I just want to make that known. Uh, you can go online and you can sign up for our groups there, but we'd love for you to be part of groups. Uh, that, starts, that started this last week. And this Friday, we're actually going to have our first night of worship here at the school at 7 p.m. And I just want you to make, just to be aware of that, that will be a night of prayer and worship Friday here at Quiet Waters Elementary. We'd love for you to join us. But Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. Uh, in case you're new, let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Mark is the first gospel written. Uh, Mark was written by really studying under Peter. A guy named Eusebius, an early church father, said that uh, this is actually Peter's gospel that Mark really is penning. He's really writing it down. And I love the gospel of Mark. It is the shortest gospel. It's 16 chapters. It's also referred to as the ADD gospel because Mark is just all over the place, jumping from story to story. But here's what we see. We see that wherever Jesus is going in the Gospel of Mark, he's just on mission. That wherever Jesus is going, we see him bringing life and healing and meaning and restoration and setting people free and healing the blind. And we just see over and over again that Jesus, wherever he goes, he brings life. And so we want to join Jesus on this mission that we as a church, we as individuals, wherever we go, how can we bring life and healing and restoration? And this is kind of the hope as we study the gospel of Mark. Now, I want to remind some of you, if you missed last week, last week's text was very interesting to me. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus feed the 4,000. In chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. Last week, we saw him see the, feed the 4,000. And it's almost as if the disciples forgot about the feeding of the 5,000. It's almost as if they didn't believe he could do it again. And then we see that Jesus, he feeds the, the 4,000, he gets uh, to, into a boat, he's, he's meet, met by the Pharisees, the Pharisees meet him and say, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, do a sign from heaven. And Jesus is like, I've given enough signs, I'm not giving you any more signs. And then they get in another boat again, and as they're going, they for, the disciples forgot the bread, and Jesus thought about this and thought it was a teachable moment and says, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And if you're with us, remember the disciples, their mind kind of freaked out and go, oh my gosh, Jesus is mad we forgot the bread. Like, oh no, we forgot the leftover bread. And Jesus is like, in verse 21, he says, you still don't get it. How is it you still don't understand? And so last week, we really talked about almost like spiritual blindness. That you can still be around the things of God. You can still be close to God. And proximity to Jesus does not mean intimacy. That you can still be around the house of God, around the people of God. You can go to church week after week. It doesn't mean you're close to him. It doesn't mean you know him. And so it's interesting. I used to view this text we're going to read today as almost like a different story. And really what we're going to see in verse 22, where Jesus heals a blind man, it's really a continuation of the last week. So we got to see that. That we're going to see Jesus heal a blind man. We're going to see Peter confess Jesus Christ. We're going to see Peter get rebuked for saying, no, Jesus, you can't die. And we're going to see some Jesus say a lot of hard things. And here's what I see. Just the focus today, the title today, is the, the controversial Jesus. Because Jesus spits in a blind guy's eyes. He calls Peter Satan. And then he says, if you want to follow me, you need to die. All right, that's controversial. Um, that's some hard things. There's a lot of hard things said there. And I really want us to think about this. If you really think about the life of Jesus, 
whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, whether you're just like, I'm interested in the things of God, I'm interested in the Bible, Jesus' life is very controversial. From his birth, you know, his claiming, his, his mom claims it's a virgin birth, right? We believe it's a virgin birth, obviously, but people were skeptics. From his birth, he's been like a, an exile to a different land. From his teachings, from his claims, I'll destroy this temple in three days, raise it up. From his controversial death, his controversial resurrection, to the fact that he hung out with controversial people like prostitutes and tax collectors. I mean, the life of Jesus is incredibly controversial. I mean, if you say you're following Jesus and your life isn't controversial, the question is, what Jesus are you following? Because eventually you're going to offend someone. He's gonna, he offended everyone, whether the religious people he offended. Whether you could say the Herodians were more self-indulgent, he offended them. He offended everyone. And sooner or later, we're going to see that our life by following Jesus is going to offend someone. You know, so we're going to look at and talk about the controversial Jesus and, and some of the statements here and some of the things he, he said. I wanted to like break this up and forgive me. This, to me, I probably say this every week. This, this is like four teachings today. All right, this, there's just so much here. There's so much content here. And I'm excited to look at this more in depth. And before we do, just two, two quotes I have to share with you as we talk about the controversial Jesus. Uh, one guy said this, his name is John Stott. He said, we must allow the word of God to confront us to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. We must give God place to do this. This is going to happen in the text. This text before us, what we're going to read, Jesus saying, you must die and follow me. That's not some small thing. This is very controversial. It's going to challenge us. It's going to, it challenged me. It has challenged me. It's still challenging me. It will challenge me. Another guy, I got to put it this way because my, you know, you know, I quote him. He's a Yoda of today. His name's Tim Keller. He said, uh, he says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And please hear that. I need to hear that. If my God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And so this Jesus, this controversial Jesus that we're going to look at and study, he challenges all of us. And I'm so thankful for that. And let's look at this. Let's just read this. So the disciples, remember verse 21, ended with Jesus saying, you don't get it. You're spiritually blind. And now Jesus and them meet a blind man. And this is like a real story, but it's really almost like a physical metaphor happening in front of their own eyes. So let's read verse 22. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. We'll read it, then pray. Mark 8, 22. Jesus, it says, Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought, they, the people, they brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the town. And I would say pay attention to some of these details. He led him out of town, and when Jesus had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I, I see men like trees walking. Then Jesus put his hand on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. You're like, what? We'll talk about that. Uh, verse 27, now, now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? What are they saying about me? Verse 28, so they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. <laughs> Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. 
He spoke this word openly, meaning he's not speaking in parables or metaphors like he has before. Then Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. I love you, Peter. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had, he had called the people to himself, verse 34, and his disciples also, listen, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You can understand why this is the controversial Jesus. Why what he did to this blind man, what he said to Peter, what he said to everyone is just, it challenges all of us. And again, you can understand why I said I wanted this to be like a four-week thing, but just for your sake and my sake, I'm trying to make this one message today. So let's just pray. Let's give this to the Lord and ask him to speak to us this morning. So Father, we, um, God, we are humbled by this word. We're thankful that we can slow down and talk about your son, talk about how God, you put on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld your glory. And Jesus, I just ask that, um, myself that's so often spiritually blind still or doesn't always see things clearly still that Jesus just more and more you would open our eyes to who you are God for everyone in this room they'd open our eyes to really seeing you clearly that Jesus we'd have the right confession of you the right understanding of you that Jesus it would not just be in word only but let our life style and let our life also reflect that as we follow you and take up our cross so God speak to us God I, I know this is confusing it's maybe weird language and sometimes we, we're distant from the actual context so, so Lord we ask that you would speak clearly and make it plainly to us and God that we can just better understand you and follow you and we just thank you Jesus that you first took up your cross before you before we did we just praise you now in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had a teacher make this statement or claim or say this to you, uh, but growing up, I had many teachers in high school, middle school, and elementary. They would always say, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Now, my goal in high school and in middle school was to prove them wrong. Uh, you don't tell a sixth grade boy. I remember this. I remember clearly my sixth grade teacher being like, there's no such thing as a dumb question. And I was like, I'll show you. I'm a sixth grade boy, right? I remember thinking to myself, they'd always make those comments. I'm like, I'll think of a question that they go, that was a dumb question. Um, and those questions can be, I got paid back later, don't worry, as a youth pastor with many dumb questions later on in my life. Um, but there are some interesting questions that people ask or throw out there. And I think there's something frustrating sometimes when you're asked a question, they're like, that makes no sense. Why would you even ask that? I remember there's so many times I'd be talking to students or people and they go, hey, the leader of the event said I should be there at eight. What time do you think I should be there? Like probably eight, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever been asked a question like that and you're like, why did you ask me? My wife doesn't like um, uh, dumb questions at all. So I got to be very careful. I'm like, I'm going to ask a question right now, but have I asked this before? Has she said this? And they'll ask, and it's like, I already answered. I'm like, oh, you know, and I have to like always think through it before I ask a question sometimes, because we don't usually like dumb questions. I remember one teacher said, maybe you're a teacher in this room, and you said, there's like, there's no such thing as a dumb question, just dumb people. Um, that's another way that I've also heard it said. But here in our text, we honestly see, I think, a few of the greatest questions ever asked, and Jesus is the one who's asking all of them. 
And I want you to think about really bad questions you've been asked. I want you to think about some of the best questions you've ever been asked. My son who's three has asked me questions, like questions, I don't even think he knows what he's asking. And I'm like, it's like an existential like, crisis I have. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is life? Like, you know, like, and I don't know if you've ever stopped and slowed down and tried to ask those questions. And so here are probably some of the greatest questions you'll ever be asked. I think two at least are the two greatest questions you can ever be asked, and Jesus asked all four of them. I'll throw up these questions here really quick for you guys. Jesus in our text says, who do men say that I am? That's just a, it is a good question. What do people think about Jesus? What do people say about Jesus? But Jesus makes it really personal. He goes, who do you say that I am? I literally think this is the most important question anyone could ever answer. How do you define Jesus? What do you say about Jesus? What do, when you think about Jesus, what comes in your mind or heart, and we'll talk more about that, Jesus asked two really good questions. He says, what, and he, back to back, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What if you gain everything you've ever wanted, but in the end you've lost your soul? And he puts another way, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And we'll see that people usually give their soul for, for a lot less than the whole world. And these are some of the greatest questions, I think, that have ever been asked. And I, I've had to, like, slow down and, and ask myself this question again and again. I don't know if these are questions I just answer one time and I'm done. I think these are ongoing questions that I constantly have to go back. I constantly have to go back and remind myself, who is Jesus? What does he say? What does he claim? And here's what we see in our text, because this is very interesting to me. We're going to see that blind man receives sight, but it doesn't seem like it works at first. And, and it's very interesting. We're going to see Peter, he realizes, in a sense, his eyes are opened. He goes, you are the Christ. But then Peter had a different definition of Christ than Jesus had as a definition of Christ. And then Jesus is going to say something else really hard. And so we just walk through this text. And here's kind of how I want to break it down today. And, and don't get lost in some of the points. But again, to me, it's like four sermons. I'm like, okay, let me make it one. Uh, but here's some of the thoughts today. We're going to see the first thing in verse 22 through 26 is that seeing comes in stages. Seeing comes in stages. And even just speaking, not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. We're going to see Peter enters stage two. Don't get lost in the numbers. But Peter enters a new stage. We're going to see that Peter reverts back to his old stage, to stage one. And then we're going to see Jesus calls us to a greater stage. That's kind of how I broke it up. Now, don't get lost. I'm not saying, like, yeah, there's like level 50. There's 50 levels in Christianity. And are you level 42, 13? I don't know. It's not that. But what we do see really with this is we do see that throughout our Christian life, throughout our Christian journey, we do see kind of new layers of uh, who Jesus is. I still feel like today there are new sights or perspectives of Jesus I didn't have five years ago, 10 years ago. I think I'll be laughing at myself in 15 years about certain things I thought. You know, and I think that there's, we see that scene does come in stages. Spiritual sight, even with Peter, if you just study the life of Peter, we're going to see his scene comes in stages, even into the New Testament. And so this is what I want to look at and be encouraged by this. Because maybe you believed in Jesus at one point in time and you're like, I don't feel like I fully get it. We'll join the club. And we're going to see that so often it comes in stages. So can we look at through this? Can we study this a little more in depth? Let's do that. Verse 22, we're going to look at the first one. Scene comes in stages. Scene comes in stages. Let's read this story. Pick up on the details. Really weird details. We'll look at this more in depth. Verse 22, it says, Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and the crowd, they brought him a blind man to Jesus and begged him, please, to touch him. So he takes the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the town and when Jesus had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. It's so interesting to me. Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I, I see men like trees walking. What? 
Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his own house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. What is happening here? Like, what is going on? If you've ever read this story before, maybe you're just reading it right now for the first time, there's so many questions like, did Jesus really not work? Why did he spit on his eyes? What is going on? You know, I don't think it's like Jesus is like, hey, I'm trying this new method out. Instead of touching people or just saying a word, I'm going to spit on your eyes and just kind of see what happens this time. Like, just trust me, this is my first time doing this miracle. Like, let me just try this one out. And the guy's like, oh, okay, I see men like trees. It's not that he's like trying out a new way of healing people. He's actually, and please hear this, we're seeing that what he's doing with this blind man is a teaching moment for the disciples. And I want you to say that this is a, a literal story. It really happened. This man did receive his sight. But it really does. This blind man speaks of the disciples in so many ways, and of us, and of the Pharisees, and of the Herodians, and all of those who didn't see Jesus clearly. And it really speaks of us in so many unique ways. Actually, let me point back a verse we studied last week. It's Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 18, I believe. Mark chapter 8, he says, 7 through 18, he says, do you, do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Remember when Jesus said this to him last week? He's like, you've been with me for so long. You've seen me heal and people, you've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me feed thousands of people. And he goes, and having eyes, do you not see? He's like, you still don't get it. You still don't understand. And see, here comes now, after Jesus saying, hey, you have eyes and don't see, here comes a guy who has eyes but doesn't see. It's like right after this. And he heals this man in stages. He never, we don't see him do this. Jesus never heals to someone and is like, did it work? Like, that's what he asks. He's like, what do you see? Jesus never does that. Why does he stop and say, did you, what do you see now? Why does he do that? He's bringing attention to the fact that this man is seen in stages. He's blind. He kind of sees. He will clearly see. And that is really our spiritual experience. And that is the disciples' spiritual experience. And please understand, I used to look at verse 1 through 21 of Mark 8 as like separate than the blind man's story and Peter seeing Jesus the Messiah. I used to not see the connection at all. Like I used to see those two different, completely different stories when they're so linked together by the story of the blind man. Peter confessing Jesus as Messiah and the disciples not getting it on the boat is so linked to the story of the blind man. That this blind man has eyes but does not see, and Jesus goes, he's going to see in stages. What do you see? I see men like trees walking. Pay attention to that. And then he's like, he heals him again, and we see this man has full sight. And here's what I want us to see, and really the thought today is simple. Everyone, everyone we see in the Gospel of Mark so far has been spiritually blind. Not just bad people. The religious people were spiritually blind. The people who thought they knew God were spiritually blind. The Herodians, the people that followed Herod in his lifestyle, they were also spiritually blind. The disciples, the ones closest to Jesus, were spiritually blind. And we got to see this. Can I tell all of us at one point in time and still are either spiritually blind or maybe we see, see things fuzzy, but we see that healing does come in stages. We see that seeing comes in stages. And I really want us to think about this because we see this in, P in Peter's life. When you study the Gospels, and you study even into the book of Acts and even into some of the New Testament letters. Peter's constantly growing in his knowledge and understanding of Jesus and of grace and what it means to follow him. It's not like he just fully got it and he never grew anymore. He never saw anything ever again. He never, he never understood anything. He constantly was learning and growing. And all of us need to see that there's this, almost this thought like blindness is pervasive. Like for all of us are affected by blindness. All of us have times where we don't see Jesus clearly or we don't really just see it all. And here's why I say this does. This gives us compassion on people. Why? Um, when someone doesn't get it, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus or something spiritual and they don't get it. What can happen is we can get really frustrated on the inside. Like, why don't you get it? It's so clear. Can't you see? It's obvious that Jesus died and rose again. And they're like, it's not obvious to them. 
and it's not really clear to them. And what you're saying, like you're speaking a different language. Some of you right now are looking at me like you're speaking a different language. You use words I've never heard before. Like, what are you saying? And this is what ha- it really does give us grace for people to go, yeah, I was, I, I was blind. I, I still see things a little fuzzy. I know not really until I'm face to face with Jesus as 1 Corinthians 13. Right now I see through a glass mirror dimly, but one day face to face. One day it will be really clear. One day, like, you know, we like to make Jesus again in our image. We have conservative Jesus, liberal Jesus. We like to make Jesus who we think he is. But one day we'll see him face to face. One day, whatever worldview, whatever perspective, we'll go, okay, he's even better than, he's even better than I thought. And I want to say that seeing spiritually comes in stages so often. And, and please, I, I love this. When Jesus goes, hey, what do you see? It's funny because think about all the rumors and stories of Jesus at this point in time. Jesus is healing everyone and anyone. He's just healing and healing and healing. For this guy, he seems to be like the first guy that like, it, doesn't, it seems like it doesn't work. So like imagine you're a blind guy and like you, you have sight. You're going, like, if Jesus said that to me, I'd probably have this like pride of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, it works. Great, thank you. Like, thank, I'm good. Like this fuzzy, the, your hair looks crazy right now, but it's great. Like I, I wonder like what that was like. Like he had it, he had to kind of let like, go of his pride and go, it's not really clear. You know, and he has, to, he has to say that and then Jesus touches him again. And I really think there's something to our spiritual life when we say, Jesus, this isn't really clear to me. It's still kind of fuzzy. And I think that that, that just confession Guys, listen, after following Jesus 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be, there still needs to be confessions of Jesus. This is still unclear to me. This is still fuzzy to me. Can you make this clear to me? I love that he admits that he doesn't see it clearly. So for all of us, again, I know myself, there are things I've said and I've had to like go back and laugh at. There are things maybe I've believed. Maybe there's things you've said or believed about the Bible, scriptures, Jesus, or maybe just like you've made, Jesus would definitely vote this way. Or you say things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that before, right? I have no idea whatever that looks like. But there'll probably be a time we'll look back in 10, 15 years and go, well, uh, Jesus, thank you for making it even more clear. Thank you for opening my eyes more and more. I, w- I want us to see that seeing many times, seeing spiritually comes in stages. So let me kind of explain. Sometimes we can use the, the Apostle Paul's life as like a story of salvation and redemption. Be like, Saul, remember Paul? His name was Saul. He used to murder and persecute Christians. He dragged them out of their homes and throw them in prison. Not a good guy. Jesus meets him on the road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Eventually Saul is met by Ananias and he believes in Jesus and he can see again. And sometimes we talk about salvation like as soon as you believe in Jesus, overnight you're going to get it all. You're going to understand. You're going to be like Paul. You're just going to get it. And we forget that Paul spent three years in Arabia. We forget that Paul also had to gradually grow and see. But sometimes we think like when I get saved, they they talk about salvation as once I get saved, my life is better. Everything's better. I see clearly. I should just get it now. But that's not the story with Peter. And we got to see that. I'm so thankful that seeing does come in stages and it's gradual. And so join the club if you feel like I still don't get it. Things are fuzzy to me about Jesus and the gospel. Why does God say this? Why does God do that? We're still growing in our seeing. Do you see that? Jesus is showing them, hey, listen, you have eyes and don't see. Here's a man who has eyes and doesn't see. It seems like my miracle doesn't work. That's not the point. What I'm trying to show you is that for him, seeing comes in stages, and it's going to come in stages for you because Peter is about to make the greatest profession in the scriptures and then one minute later be called Satan, all right? And we see that seeing comes in stages in this way, and I'm so thankful for that. And please, I have to like point out some of these, these details. Notice the crowd brings him, and, and to me, that's, the crowd's a friend. When the crowd is saying, Jesus, touch him, they're saying, you need to do something. It doesn't act like the blind man even necessarily was the one who said, yeah, touch me, heal me. It's more as if the crowd is saying, this guy needs healing, and I love that this guy's healed in community. I love that it fa- the fact that it takes a community to bring healing to him. 
Please understand, no one just wakes up one day by themselves and is like, I should just go to church and follow Jesus. Like, usually there's like a community of people being like, why don't you come with me? Why don't you hear about Jesus? And then you hear more and hear more and ask questions and, and wrestle with this and doubt and throw out some of those, those questions in your heart. Like, that's okay. It happens so often in community. And healing spiritually, seeing spiritually, so often happens in community. When people are dragging you along saying, you got to come with me. you got to see Jesus for yourself. I don't get it. I know. It took me a while, too. That's what's happening in this text. Do we see that? And I love, I love Jesus' patience. I love some of the details. You know, one of the things that blows my mind about this text, and please hear this. Think about this really quick. The guy is blind. He's dragged outside of the city. Jesus spits on his eyes. And he's healed. <laughs> and, and I want us to understand something. We've talked about this before, in case you've missed this. But in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is constantly in his ministry undoing everything that's been done to people. Like He's undoing sin. We see in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus uses, or Mark uses stories to describe Jesus, whether it's a demon-possessed guy, and he's bound, and he's crying out. And we see that Jesus eventually takes on everything that people have suffered with. Do we not remember in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do we not remember the fact that Jesus had his eyes covered, and he's beaten and spat on? His eyes are covered, he's made blind, he's spat upon, he's taken outside of the city so that you and I could be brought in. What Jesus does to this blind man seems kind of weird to us. He's blind, he's spat upon, he's brought outside the city, but that's what Jesus would do. Jesus would be blind, he'd be spat upon, he'd be brought outside the city. Jesus is constantly undoing everything so we can be brought in. He's like, I'm going to take on this guy's blindness. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be brought outside the city and crucified on a cross so that you and I can be brought in. And we see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly just unwinding and undoing all that, all that junk to people. I'm so thankful we see this with Jesus. These details are so bizarre to me, but they're so necessary. Mark is trying to show that Jesus is going to do that. Do we see that? Scene comes in stages. And now I love Peter and this story. Next, we'll go to number two. Uh, but number two, Peter enters stage two. And that's not really fair, but it's like a new stage. All right, a new stage in his understanding. Look at verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they, the disciples, answered John the Baptist. Uh, some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. All right, what is going on here? Like, what is happening at this moment? They're on this walk with Jesus. They come to Caesarea Philippi, and this is where Jesus poses this question. Now, let me just explain Caesarea Philippi, because the city does matter. The area does matter. Uh, I've been blessed by God's grace to go to Caesarea Philippi, and we're going to go in 2020, and a shameless plug, if you want to go to Israel, you can sign up, uh, but we're going to go there. We're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. Understand, there's this guy named Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great was the ruler of this region within Judea. He ruled the land. Who's his boss? Caesar Augustus. Caesar, he actually, or a different Caesar, but he actually wants to build a temple to Caesar Augustus, so he builds this temple, and he names the city Caesarea Caesar. So he builds this temple to Caesar. Now understand, in Caesarea Philippi, you can go there today and still within the rocks and the cliffs, you can still see these carvings and these kind of shrines to pagan gods, to foreign gods. There's a lot of idolatry there, a lot of pagan worship there. Caesar was known as the son of God. That's the title he gave himself. Caesar gave himself the title, I am the son of God. And here comes Jesus into the region of Caesar's land, the region of the son of God, into this pagan land. And he goes, who do men say that I am? And I want you to see this. It's good stuff, right? Like, you're, you're John the Baptist. Remember, Herod thought that. John the Baptist was beheaded. He was murdered by Herod. Herod hears about Jesus and goes, oh my gosh, Her Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnate. 
And now that rumor's probably spread. And so some are going, yeah, you're, you're, you're John the Baptist. Some are like, no, you're Elijah. You're one of the prophets. Like, you are one of the great prophets. All of those are good things. All of those are honorable things, but it's not the most important thing. And there's still somewhat positive kind of idea around the person of Jesus at this point in time. And still today, many cases, there's still this positive idea of Jesus. It's like, Jesus is a pretty good guy. He's a revolutionary. He's a moral teacher. He's my homeboy. He's something like, there's a lot of positive ideas to who Jesus is. There's a lot of positive ideas when it comes to him, but it's still not enough. And that's what, that's what I really want us to kind of see here. There's still people who have a high view of Jesus. We've talked to people of other faiths, and they still have a high view of Jesus. Jesus is one of the great prophets or the greatest prophets in, in Islam. In their mind, he's still an incredible prophet who has powers and miracles and he can still do a lot of things. But that's still not the most important. And what I want us to see is though there's all these great thoughts and ideas for Jesus, it wasn't enough, and that's what's very unique. The unique thing about this is, listen, whether it's Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha, they either pointed to God or pointed to the pathway of God. Jesus is not, Jesus saying, hey, I'm something completely different. You got to consider me. No, I'm not just pointing to God. I'm not just a pathway to God. I am God in the flesh. <laughs> and Jesus is offering a completely new idea. And this would be offensive to people. It's like, who do men that I am? It's funny, you can read about different, you know, historians and people throughout, the, you know, different eras and how they describe Jesus. Still, a lot of people thought highly of Jesus. I got him H.G. Wells. Maybe you read his books or seen his movies, uh, War of Worlds, things like that. Uh, he was a historian. This is what he said. I, th- I like this quote. I found it. I wanted to read it. He said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. Referring to a Christian believer. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure of history. Go, wow, that's a nice quote. That's not enough. Understand that is not enough. Just saying he's he, the center of the world revolves around, I got to acknowledge that. You know, BC, 80, all of that revolves around the person of Jesus. It's not enough. What he said right here is not a confession of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. It's not enough. There's a lot of high, lofty views of Jesus. Peter, and I love this, Jesus actually now personalizes it. He goes, well, that's what men say, but who do you say? And I love how Jesus gets personal. Do you ever feel like Jesus gets personal and like it hurts or it's weird or like, okay, it's uncomfortable right now? And I love that Jesus basically, he gets personal. He's like, define the relationship. Ever had that talk, boyfriend, girlfriends? Like, so what are we? What is this? Right? Define the relationship. Like, that's what Jesus is doing. He's like, define this. What is this? And Peter, Peter looks on and goes, you're the Christ. And and that is enough. You can read Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16. We see the same confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my father in heaven. And like you see more. I love that Mark's commentary is most likely from Peter. And he kept it simple. And he's like, let's spend time on me getting rebuked and calling me Satan. Like that's the spend on time. <laughs> but we, we, see, we see Peter with this awesome confession of you are the Christ. What is the Christ? The word Christ is just anointed one. What is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? In the Old Testament, the, the, pri- the priest or prophet would anoint a king. And it was set apart saying, you're going to rule the people. But one day, there will be a king who will be anointed last. There'll be no more need for anointing other kings. There'll be the king who ends all kings. There'll be the king of kings. And when he comes on, he's going to be the anointed one. We'll never need to anoint another person again because he is the anointed one. He is the anointed one we've been looking for. And that's what Peter's saying is, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the anointed king. You're the king to end all kings. You are the king of kings. And that's what Peter's confessing. And he's like, yes. Don't tell anyone. What? Like verse 30, right? I love that little last part. He's like, great job. Shh, shh, shh. Like, what? Uh. And, and I always like, whenever you see Jesus do this, like, what is that? Why do you do that, Jesus? And, and here's why I, I really believe. I believe it's because he understood in part. He saw men like trees. Well, he got it, but it's still fuzzy because his definition of Christ and Jesus' definition of Christ is a little bit different. 
And, and that's what we're going to see next as we move on. So it's like, good job, Peter. And I picture Peter like, I got it right. I'm blessed on this rock. I'll build my church. That's me. Like, right? That's what just happened. Verse 31 now, we're going to see Peter reverts back <laughs> to stage one. Uh, verse 31, it says, and Jesus began to teach them. So it's like, you're the Messiah. Good job. And he taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus spoke this word openly. He's like, it's really clear. Then Peter took him aside and and he began to rebuke Jesus. (laughs) But when he turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. One moment he's a hero, the next moment he's a zero. And I, I love this about Peter. Peter's like, well, I'm one for one. Let's try, let's try again. Jesus, you're wrong. And then he pulls him aside and rebukes him. Now here's what we see. Jesus is now redefining the Messiah. And this, would, this is controversial. He, in a sense, to them, he's redefining the Messiah. He's not. You see, the son of man, he's using a term. The son of man, Jesus said, must suffer many things. The son of man is a reference to Daniel 7. This is, again, a Messiah claim. He's calling him, that's his favorite term Jesus used about himself. I'm the son of man. But then he says must suffer. And those two things did not, like, make sense. They did not compute. How does the Messiah suffer? The Messiah comes back and rules and reign. The Messiah ushers in all justice. The Messiah is going to stop all injustices. The Messiah is going to bring us peace and shalom, everything we've longed for. And you're telling me the Messiah is going to suffer and die and rise again? And Peter finds it important now to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. But let me just focus on this. Their definition of Messiah is like a bomb was dropped to them. They're going, you, you don't get it. Now, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 44, 53, on those chapters, Jesus and the, the Messiah is referred to as a suffering servant. But to them, is either two different people or maybe they just didn't fully get it. And Jesus is going, no, no, I'm going to rule and reign. No, no, I'm not sure in peace but I'm also going to suffer, and I'm also going to bleed, and I'm also going to die. And to them, it's like, no. And think about Peter for a second. Peter's like, Jesus, like, I left being a fisherman to follow you. Like, I want to sit at your right hand. Like, what are you thinking about? We're not going to, you're going to die? If you're going to die, what's going to happen to us? And it's almost like, Jesus, do you understand why I'm following you? Do you know what I'm following you for? Do you know what you're supposed to offer me? I was going to have like a pet lion and rule next to you. Like, this was going to be awesome. Don't talk this way. You're, you're talking crazy, Jesus. And I love that it says he pulls him aside, like, hey, Jesus, step into my office, and he rebukes him. And by the way, that word rebuke is the same word that's used for Jesus rebuking the demon, Jesus rebuking the wind, the storm. It's, it's, a, very strong, like it's a strong rebu- rebuke. Imagine rebuking Jesus strongly. Like, Jesus, you don't get it. Have you ever said that before? Like, let's be honest. In our mind, our heart, Jesus, you don't get it. I get it. <laughs> right? Like, we can put down Peter, but that is us. We can be like, oh, Peter, you're so foolish, but like, we'll make Jesus step in my office. Um, I was supposed to have a better life by now. I don't know if you know that. Like, right? Like, we can do the same thing in our own way, in our own capacity, and he pulls you aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes him strongly. And then we're told that Jesus rebukes Peter and says these words, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I can't imagine anything worse than being called Satan by Jesus right? Like, that is the worst thing that if Jesus is like, hey, Satan, I'll be like, <laughs> like, I can't imagine. At one point in time, he's like, you're the Christ, son of God. He's like, yes, flesh and blood. My father's revealed that to heaven from heaven for me. Like, remember that was just said, like, Peter, you get it, you get it. And he's like, now you're Satan. Get behind me. It's like, what's, like, what's going on in Peter's mind? What happened to the disciples? Like, what's happening at this point in time? What's going on with Peter? Here, understand this. Remember what Satan, what did Satan do in the wilderness with Jesus? Do you remember the whole story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? He's like, hey, bow down and worship me and I'll give you these kingdoms. Bow down, you know, turn the stone into bread and eat, eat, be fulfilled, laugh, be celebrated, be worshipped. What was Satan trying to do? He's trying to stop Jesus from getting to the cross. He's trying to stop Jesus from getting to the cross and find some other way. What is Peter trying to do? No, no, not the cross. 
Find some other way, Jesus. Don't su- no, no. The Messiah doesn't suffer. And can I tell you, this is like an immature belief within Christianity. The Messiah doesn't suffer. His followers shouldn't suffer. That's an immature belief. We're going to suffer. Our, our Savior of the world suffered. The one we follow suffered. We're, we're going to suffer. Still an immature thought is, Jesus should still meet my needs and satisfy me and give me what I want and what I need. And uh, come on, he's supposed to rule and reign. Shouldn't I be like ruling and reigning with him? And he, he doesn't get it. Uh, put it th- way, this way. Why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Here's one way you could put it. Being like Satan meant uh, when the cross of Christ gets eclipsed by our own desire and own agenda. Being like Satan when the cross of Christ gets eclipsed by our own desire and own agenda. When you kind of look on and go, the cross is good, but no, it's better. <laughs> what I think. There, there's a side of this where, again, Peter was not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we can't just throw Peter under the bus here and be like, Peter's such an idiot. Gosh, it's always Peter, right? It's like, this, this is my heart. Where I go, Jesus, I'm mindful of the things of me, like me, me, what I want, what I like. I don't want to take this path of suffering. I don't want to take this path of dying. And not, Jesus does this. He's going to say this next. He's like, not only am I going to die, but if you're going to follow me, you're going to die. Everything about their understanding of Jesus and Messiah and following him is just turned upside down at this point. Some of the most shocking things said. They get it. Like, you're the Messiah. He's like, bingo, but let me define the Messiah to you now. And it's not what they thought. It's not what they expect. They're like, I did not sign up for this. And again, in Christianity, we can do that. We're like, I did not sign up for this. I thought following Jesus meant I have this eureka moment. My life is just better. It, it does not always look like that. Welcome to the exchange. If you're like, this is really depressing at this point. Sorry, but it, gets, it will get better, but it'll be a little hard again. Uh, but I want us to see this. I want us to see that Peter misunderstood who the Messiah is and how he should, and again, this is mindset of Jesus, you should do what I think you should do. I know what's best for the universe more than you do. That's literally what he's saying. The universal plan of God is that the Messiah would suffer and die and be rejected and rise again. He's like, no, no, I have a better plan. I have a better plan than you in that way. And again, I have to be so careful, my heart bending this way of saying, Jesus, I have a better plan than what you might have for me. You might have this plan, but I have a better one. Trust me, Jesus. Let me tell you the will of God for you. <laughs> like, that's what we do. Peter's doing this, and he goes back, and here's what we're going to end with, and here's what we got to see and focus on, because I don't think there's more intense sayings, I don't think there's more difficult sayings than this section of Mark 8, than the section of Luke 14, the same thing. I don't think there's more intense, difficult things to grasp and surrender to and say, yes, that's it, and I'm all in, than this. So let's look at this one. Jesus calls us to a new stage, and here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 34. We'll read this like one verse at a time. Verse 34, listen. So Jesus heard him say this, and, and he called the people now. So listen, Peter just got called Satan. He's like, everyone needs to gather around, because Peter really misunderstood this. He called the people to himself, with his disciples also, and he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now for us, this isn't as scandalous as it was to them. We like, oh, I've heard that verse okay. We kind of like domesticate that saying. Like we'll be like, oh, it's just my cross to bear. You know, it's like my boss at work is just my cross to bear. My spouse is just my cross to bear. Like, well, that's probably why your marriage is not so good because you say things like that. Like, don't say that. Like, oh my, <laughs> this thing is my cross to bear. And like we like, try to like simplify it, domesticate it. When at first this would be a really scandalous thing. Like think again, think for us in the cross. The cross was just so shameful and horrible. No Roman, they would punish by death through crucifixion. It was just so incredibly shameful. They didn't want to do this to their own people. Jesus is like, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up, take up your cross. You're going to have to follow me. Like, they saw people take up their crosses. This is not uncommon. They would see people walking down the road bearing a cross, and what did that mean? That person's on his way to die. If they saw someone walking on the road carrying a cross, like, nah, they're probably having just a good day, a little stroll. Like, no, they knew it means they're on their way to die, and Jesus is saying, hey, see that person carrying the cross? 
That's what's going to be to follow me. And, and again, we try, like we today, 2018, we have crosses everywhere. Like we're wearing a cross, and it's not bad. It's not bad to ever wear a cross. I love, the, I love what it reminds us of. But it almost just becomes, we become numb to it. We'll put a cross in like our living room. We'll put it like in our baby's room, like over the crib. And like, it's crazy. If you think about it, imagine like in like 40, you know, AD, you walk in over like a crib is like, you know, a firing squad <laughs> or something like, if you're still like, what is, what is that? Like, you don't do that. I know there's no guns, but like, you don't do that. Like, this is such a weird thing. If that was today and we saw someone like paying death pictures all over their house, I'd be like, Johnny, you're no longer playing at their house anymore. Like, get out of there. Like, that's weird. You don't do that. So for us, it's not as scandalous, but for them, this is incredibly scandalous going, I have to take my cross and die. You're saying that you're going to die and I'm going to have to die. That's what it's going to take to follow you. Jesus is like, yes. It's going to be denial of self and death to self. And I love the next verse. We'll get to the next verse because the goal is not this self, you know, hurtful, painful thing. It's actually so that our life will be saved. It's a really positive light. But I, I do want to point out there is still this pain and this denial of self and this death to self. And this, I'm going to follow Jesus. Luke's gospel says you must take up your cross daily. He throws the word daily in there and follow me. That's a, it's a moment by moment thing that I need to die to myself daily. And, and here's what I see and here's what I love about the story. And please don't get lost in this. I want you to like, hear this with me. When the blind man was healed the first time, he goes, I see men like trees walking. And that's always a weird thing to me. And I've always viewed these stories as completely different. But when you really think about this, and you think about how in the New Testament, the, the cross is constantly called a tree. Think about 1 Peter 2, 24. He talks about who Christ in himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The cross is always called a tree. Even the, the Greek word is a tree. It's a tree. And Jesus pulls this blind man out of the city. It's just him and the disciples. He opens his eyes. He's like, I see men like trees walking. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Elisha and his servant, Gehazi, and uh, this, his servant's freaking out. And he's like, we're going to die. We're surrounded by armies. And God's like, or Elijah's like, God, open up my servant's eyes. And he opens up his servant's eyes and he sees the spiritual realm. And he's like, I see angels everywhere. We're not going to die. He's like, yeah. And he opens his eyes to the spiritual realm. I honestly wonder when Jesus healed him the first time, if his eyes are open to the spiritual realm. And he's looking around. He goes, I just, it's Jesus and the disciples. I just see men like trees walking. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to be a walking tree. You're going to have to walk around and carry your cross, the cross, which is the tree. You're going to have to walk around and die. And I wonder if we saw the disciples in the light that Jesus saw them as they're dying. They're on the, I, this is what you have to do, but this is what they're doing. They're walking trees. They're walking, following Jesus, saying, I'm going to die. He opens his eyes. He's like, I see men like trees walking. He's like, yeah, you do. You see people following me who are going to have to die to themselves. Isn't that, that for me when I just read that? I'm like, oh my gosh, God, you're so cool. How you do that? This is not just like a weird random story. Like, I always like, was like, why does he see trees walking? And Jesus is like, you got to take a tree and follow me. You got to take a tree and follow me. You got to take a tree and die on the cross. You're going to have to die, in a sense. Figure, it's like, yes. And it, honestly, it might mean little death. We do know believers who literally die. It might not, let's be honest, like here in South Florida, in America, it might not mean death for the majority of us. It might, most likely won't. But it will mean death to self, death to ego, death to what I want, death to what I think. It will mean some form of death, like that my will versus God's will. Death to our reputation, and you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, yeah, and your mind, you're dead to them. It still will mean death to self in some capacity. And Jesus is like, that's what's good. To follow me, your life needs to die so you can find it, so you can have a new life. There's a guy named David Platt who always uh, challenges everyone all the time, and he uh, said this, I love it, and please don't get mad at me because I didn't write this. He said, we, American Christians, have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. 
a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts, a Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who for what matter wants us to avoid danger altogether, a Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. <laughs> I feel like I had to read that and be like, I give up, right? Like, I don't know if it's just like, you read that, you're like, yes, it's so true, like, Jesus, whatever I think it means to follow you, this American idea, version of, of following Jesus, like help me just be able to submit that over to what it means to really follow you. Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like death to self in that way. And then moving on, Jesus says this. You're going to have to die to self, and I love verse 35. Look at verse 35. He writes and says, or says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And this is a paradox. Please hear, this is so weird to us. We hear this like, so to save my life, I lose it. If I try to save my life, I lose it. But if I lose my life, if I lose it, I save it. Like what is it? Jesus is like, if you try to do this, if you try to do this through your identity, through your will, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, for the gospel's sake, you say, I give up my life, because then you'll really find salvation. And here's the thing, because this can be one of those messages where you go, this is so hard, so many hard sayings. Know the heart of Jesus is what? Salvation. The heart of Jesus is saving. The heart of Jesus is that you can find your life, but the only way you can find it is by losing it. And that is so difficult for us. Because again, we, for some reason, we have this idea, if I give my life to God, God's just going to make me suffer. And we don't realize we serve a really good God. And it's the goodness of God who brings us to repentance. And for some reason, we kind of have this mindset that God like, wants to torture us or wants us to suffer. And we don't realize that just like we are God's children, God's son, God's daughter, I want my son to do well. And I want my son to have a mean, meaningful life. But I also want to discipline him so he can. And I also want to correct him so he can. I want to make sure, like, he is on that right track. And Jesus is like, if you really want to find your life, just surrender it. Surrender your life, and you'll really find it. You'll really save it. And that is the great paradox to me of the Bible. Of, like, the kingdom remembers everything's upside down. When he says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, everything about the kingdom of God is upside down. You want to be first, be last. You want to be the greatest, be the least. You want to find your life, lose it. Everything is just this upside down. That's how Jesus explains the kingdom. It's upside down how we think. We think you go for your, like, you live for yourself, do what you need to do, serve you, love you, you know, it's all about you. Jesus is like, no, no, give up your life, and then you'll find that meaning. Then you'll find that joy. Then you'll find that peace. You'll find what you're looking for once you surrender. And it's so painful to surrender, but when you do, you go, oh my gosh, he has so much better things in store than I ever could for myself. A guy uh, named, let's read another quote to you, named C.S. Lewis, who some of you might know, Listen to this. It's a long quote, but it's so good. I couldn't say it, so I had to just take it. He says, this principle, listen, the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Listen, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing. Listen, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really our, yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And hear that again. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else thrown in. Is that not so true? When I look to myself, I want to look to myself. He's like, you're going to find loneliness, de decay, death, despair. But when you look to Christ, you find everything and everything else thrown in. What you've been really looking for comes through loss. Comes through, I'm going to give it up. And this is so difficult for us. I know it. it's hard to like kind of peel back someone's fingers, but like, give it up. 
But as soon as your hands are open, Jesus can place new things in your hands. Like, just give it up, though. And Jesus is saying, you want to find your life, lose it. And I know this is a word, not for one person in here, but for all of us. Like, I know for all of us, this is not a Bible study for one person who doesn't believe in Jesus. This is a study for Christians. You want to find your life, lose it. You want to save your life, give it up. Jesus is saying, give it to me. Pick up your cross, follow me. Because the goal here is salvation, but salvation comes through death. Jesus died and brought salvation. Can I, can I tell you the thing about Christianity that I love and that we've said this before, but it needs to be spoken into my heart daily, but salvation is completely free. Jesus paid it all, all to him. Salvation is completely free. No one could ever work their way for heaven. I don't deserve heaven because I've been good. No way, because I'm not. Salvation is completely free. Jesus on the cross says it is finished. It is completely free, but discipleship and following Jesus will cost you everything. Salvation is free. Praise God for that. Heaven's free. Heaven is for those who are humble and just say, God, I just repent of my sin. I need you. God, I, I just accept what you, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Salvation is free. No one can work for that. But discipleship will cost you most things, if not everything. Following Jesus will be painful, but it'll be the most, <laughs> the most well-worth thing you've ever done. And this is what Jesus is describing. And then Jesus asks some questions, and we have to read these questions because just, so the, you know, I feel like this is like jab, jab, uppercut from Jesus. Uh, verse 36, he says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And it's sad, thinking about this question, I've honestly had like write in like answer and go, a man gives his soul up for a lot less than the whole world. You know, it is crazy. Jesus is saying, Jesus saying, your soul is not worth the world. If you got everything ever, every island, every like bank account, if you got everything ever, it's still not worth your soul being separated from God forever in hell. Still not worth it. And you think about it, and yet we'll give up our soul for a lot less than that. We'll give up our soul for just one moment, one experience, one night, one feeling, one whatever. And we give up our soul for a lot less than the whole world. And Jesus is saying, if, I, if, if Satan was to say, here's the world, it still wouldn't be enough for your soul. This temporary pleasure is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory we have in Christ. It's nothing compared to that. And he's trying to shine light and saying, stop giving up your soul for something that's not going to satisfy you. Stop building your life on something that will never give you meaning or value or what you're really looking for. Can I tell you, every culture, maybe it's a traditional Eastern culture, or maybe it's the Western culture of like, make your name great and, you know, make a lot of money and be successful in your career. All of us build our lives upon something. All of us build our lives upon something to find meaning and worth and value. And as you try to save your soul that way, you're going to only lose it. It's once you surrender and say, I'm not going to try to find meaning, worth, and value in that person, in that thing, in that whatever, but I'm going to find my meaning, worth, and value in Christ. When you find it and when you give it for Christ, that's when you really find salvation. Can I tell you what Jesus gave in exchange for our soul? I love that question. What did man give in exchange for soul? What did Jesus give in exchange for our soul? Can we stop and ask that when you read this verse? Jesus, God, God of the universe, what did you give? God's like, I did not redeem you with corruptible things like silver or gold, but the precious blood of my son. You want to know what I gave you in exchange for your soul? I gave you the most precious thing I had. I gave you something. I gave you the most infinite, most valuable, most priceless thing in the universe, my son. That's what God gives in exchange for our soul. And we'll give it up for a one-night experience. It's like it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Jesus said, you want to follow me? You want to find salvation? You want to find your life? Lose it. Lose it. Deny yourself, pick your cross, and follow me. And then he ends with this question in verse 38. Or he ends with a statement, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the thing. Jesus says this because he knows there's going to be a tendency to be ashamed. 
No one likes the feeling of like shame. No one likes being called out by the teacher. Like no one likes the feeling of like, uh, and Jesus is like, I know by following me, there might be this tendency to want to experience, or not, not want, but you're going to experience or feel shame in some capacity. But listen to this. He's like, I was not ashamed of you. On the cross, I showed you with my arms stretched wide how much I love you and value, and there's no shame. How Jesus bore shame. He was spat upon. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was naked on the cross. Jesus took on all the shame so we don't have to experience the shame. Jesus took on all the shame so you and I could actually experience this like sense of confidence in Jesus of, yes, my God, my Savior experienced shame so I don't have to. I don't have to be ashamed of him. And this is not, a, guys, this is not something I said or wrote. This is an intense comment. If you're ashamed of me, I'll also be ashamed of you at my coming. I don't know why we don't like to talk, we don't, I don't like to talk about that. No one likes to like, let's teach on that this weekend. If you're ashamed of Jesus, that's very difficult. But Jesus is like, listen, I took that shame so you don't have to experience it. You don't have to be ashamed of me. You'd have great joy. When I read first about John, this little epistle, when you read it, it talks this great joy of this confidence of seeing Jesus, of being made like Jesus. That's what I want. That confidence before him at his coming. Oh, yes, I can't wait for him to come. I can't wait for, for his coming. You see, and the, here's kind of the question is, who's coming with me, right? Who's coming with you? In the end, guys, listen, this is for all, all of us. I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 10 years, 20, all of us, this is for today. Jesus is saying, still take up your cross, still deny yourself, still lose your life so you can find it. Dude, all of, all of us here, and if you haven't, do it. It's so worth it. It is so worth it. You know the pain of trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in, in endless relationships or endless searches for pleasure. You know what it's like. You know that black hole that it is. You know that it never satisfies. And Jesus is like, just give that up. The, the, the inner intimacy and the inner cravings of your heart that you're really looking for, I will satisfy. Jesus is made for us. We are made for Jesus. Like you think about Ecclesiastes 3, I love it. It says eternity was made, was put into the hearts of men that is only satisfied by an eternal God. That, like, I want to fulfill that in you. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to us. You see, the Christian life is not always easy. The Christian life is very difficult at times. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. One more time, he said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. <laughs> He says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. All right. I love, I love that. He's like, hey, and he's a Christian, obviously. He's like, if you want, if you want to find happiness, uh, uh, it's not going to be what you're really looking for. Like more, more than that. More satisfaction, more content. And yes, happiness. But like more than that. Something that will satisfy the deeper longings and cravings of your heart is found in Christ. If you want to find your life, lose it. Amen. And I don't, guys, can I tell you, I must know what to do. I must just be like, no, Holy Spirit, speak and move. This is a weird place to be. And I'm like, uh, here's the words of Jesus. Do you want to surrender and believe? Here's the words of Jesus. Do you want to say, I'm all in? I can't force that. No one can make you do that. It's almost like, hey, you want to really find your life? Lose it and, and find it in Christ. Get to know Jesus. Get to know the person of Jesus. What did he say? What did he claim? What did he do? That he's the resurrection and the life. And though you die, you shall live. Like, you just get to know Jesus. You spend time with, you just enjoy him. This is not some religious, do these 10 things, then one day you can get heaven. It's not that at all. It's just enjoy your Savior, Jesus Christ. Enjoy the fact that salvation is free. Enjoy the fact that he took on the shame so we don't have to experience that. Enjoy your God. Enjoy your Savior. And it's like, do you want that? And yes, it will be difficult. And yes, you'll take up your cross. But if you give up your life, you will find it. And it's so much more meaningful than you think. It's so much more valuable than you think. And I, it's like, almost like, you're like, do I just take your word for it? You're like, yeah. Do I just listen to other Christians in this room and take the word? Yeah. If you really want to find your life, lose it. I don't really know how to, other than you in your seat or you in your room or you in your car or you alone, just bowing your head before God and say, God, I just give up. I'm done. I'm not living for me, but I'm living for you. And that can happen today. That can happen when you go home. Our God is always present. 
Our God is always near. And our God is willing and longing to say, yes, you get it. Yes. Yes, salvation's free. It's applied to your account now. Let me take the debt in your account. Let me just apply my righteousness right to you because of your belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? I just want to spend some time in worship and enjoying him, and we'll close with a couple thoughts, but I just want to spend some time right now enjoying our Jesus. Can we do that? Let's pray, and then we'll worship. Father, I am at a loss even when I study this, and my lifestyle and my words are so different at times, and God, forgive me for that. Jesus, I, I do want to completely give up my life, surrender my will for your will, take up the cross daily. Je- Jesus, thank you. As Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let that be all of our prayer and desire this morning. That, Lord, from this point on, we're going to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God, speak to us. Be in this place. Jesus, we, we'd, rather, we'd rather obviously have our soul with you than gain the whole world. Jesus, we'd rather just enjoy you than experience momentary or temporary uh, happiness. We'd rather have something much more meaningful than that. Jesus, we just thank you that you give us meaning. We thank you that you've come to save. We thank you that the goal is salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that you took up the cross long before we ever did. Jesus, we thank you that you paid the way. So God, as we just sing, as we slow down, as we pray, we ask God that these words, these sayings would not go in one ear and out the other, but that Jesus, we would have this boldness before you, that we'd not be ashamed before you at your coming, that Jesus, we would never give up our soul for something so trivial like the world, (laughs) that you are so much better. So Jesus, again, we thank you now. We want to worship you now, invite you in this place, speak to our hearts in your name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.